0: Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us again on the PCICS podcast, the go-to podcast for pediatric cardiac critical care. I am here today recording live at the World Congress, the 8th World Congress of Pediatric Cardiology and Cardiac Surgery, and we're going to be talking about ethics in, in the world of pediatric cardiology. So we have a bunch of speakers here, which it's great to have so many of you. So I'll just have you go around and introduce yourselves. Roxanne, why don't you guys start it?
1: Sure. So I'm Roxanne Kirsch. I'm a cardiac intensivist and clinical bioethics associate at the Hospital for Sick Children, Toronto, Canada.
2: And I'm Melanie Jansen. I'm an intensive care specialist and clinical ethicist from Brisbane in Australia.
3: I'm uh, Katie Monian, a cardiac intensivist from Boston Children's.
4: And I'm Laura Miller-Smith. I'm the Medical Director of Cardiac Critical Care at Dornbecker, OHSU in Portland, Oregon, with some background in ethics as well.
0: Well, thank you all for joining me. I, I think it's been great at the World Congress that there's there's definitely been sessions focused on ethics, but then there's also been talks on ethics scattered throughout, which is really, really nice. And I, I really enjoyed the session that we all just walked over from, which was the, the, the ethical dilemmas in uh, congenital cardiac care. Um, So I'd like to get us started by just asking, um, and any of you can answer whatever (laughs) questions come out, but uh, for our listeners, why don't you just describe some of the biggest ethical dilemmas that are facing cardiologists and cardiac intensivists um, today or in the near future?
1: I mean, there's... Many of them. So any of our lists will be inadequate. And I, I welcome our listeners to come up with the three things we didn't think of or the 12 things we didn't think of. Because every day in critical care, especially, but in pediatric cardiology in general and cardiac surgery is is uh, uh, ingrained with some component of needing to be ethical about the care that you deliver. And challenges are uh, both old ones and new ones coming up. Some of them that we highlighted uh, in the specific ethics in, in pediatric cardiac uh, care uh, were fetal intervention and innovations, and this kind of leads us into a lot of the ethics around innovation, which has existed for a while but continues to um, evolve and make us rethink how we approach that. The treatment for patients specifically with trisomy thirteen and eighteen has been um, rapidly up ramping through the literature and has really become a focus in a specific disease. But there's really a lot of underlying ethical features to how you consider taking care of patients with syndromes or patients with disabilities that really. Could come through um, that are worthy of note. buzzword everywhere, but deeply important is how we're thinking about health and equity specific to cardiac care. Um, Beyond the fact that we have to think about it globally and in pediatrics, it's so critically important that we as cardiology uh, professionals have always been great at digging into our own patient population and ourselves. I think there's also um, reason to really think about how we're being diverse in what we're doing and who we're hiring and how we're going about our practices and how we're delivering care to our patients and what can we do about the structure problems that exist that bring up the health inequities in our patients. Um, We've had lots of uh, conversations and ongoing evolution and understanding and revisiting all the ethical aspects of delivering ECMO care for patients. This will only ever be an expanding topic as we use it more and more. Um, And we can rely back to some of the things we know from other devices and how we ethically use devices and pediatrics as a whole is in interest of of many of us. Um, We revisit a treat xenotransplantation because there is really really an uprise in how we're engaging in xenotransplantation, and there's the idea that pediatrics may actually be the ideal focus for that, um, and really some encouragement to the pediatric group to think about how we're going to lead that field rather than follow that field. Um, We have had conversations about how do you deliver and can you ethically deliver congenital heart disease care in resource-limited countries, and that's very important. And a lot of people in cardiology are doing uh, sort of various trips or trying to do outreach and global work, and there's uh, we really held a task about the the very important ways that you can do that in an ethical, appropriate, capacity-building, empowering manner. Um, And then, of course, AI, because it is just everywhere around us and nobody wants to stop thinking about it or talking about it, but there's a few different ethical issues that come up with AI that, of course, uh, translate beyond cardiology. But one of the ones that we focused on is how do we remain good doctors who are taking care of patients rather than deferring all the care to the AI um, and the ethical issues within. I think there's probably others that we've forgotten in that
2: list. Anybody (laughs) want to add a few? I think one of the things that I've noticed in the talks today, and what I've noticed in my practice in ethics and intensive care of the last few years, is that the two words that come up all the time is complexity, like the increasing complexity and the uncertainty, in particular with prognosis. And I think the increasing complexity is partly a great thing because it means like we complexity that always existed, but that we silenced, like the rights of children with trisomy 18 and 13, mm-hmm. for example, and the way we looked at quality of life and the way that we think about global health has created more complexity and I think that's really good Um, and the innovation pushing that we've been doing creates complexity and in the setting of all of that then you have uncertainty which then feeds into how do we properly do shared decision making and work out what is the right thing to do when we don't have all of the facts and then I think there's some really exciting work in particular um, what Katie was talking about during the previous session about how to then approach those conversations in that setting. And I think that's where um, people with training in ethics can really help those discussions be done in a fulsome comprehensive way.
3: Yeah, I completely agree. I think innovation is so exciting and it is, you know, where the field is moving. And at the same time, we need to be able to create boundaries through transparency and, and rigor or processes to be able to, you know, ensure that this is performed and continue to be performed in an ethically supported way and so you know the two kind of things that I've been focusing on throughout you know the a few talks this week has been on about transparency and then you know having processes or or robust processes or rigor to be able to to um, allow that to be an ethically supported um, path.
2: I
4: agree completely with these ladies. I think sprinkled throughout the discussions today is always that component of shared decision making with families and how we calibrate how directive we are as physician and providers and and, uh, nudging or moving families towards um, certain decisions when we have so much uncertainty and complexity. And I think that will be increasingly challenging. Um, the pendulum has certainly appropriately moved away from the paternalism that was, I think, utilized you know, decades ago, um, maybe maybe not quite so long ago, um, but now I think there's a lot of fear about being seen as too paternalistic, and so how do we kind of reassert our expertise and knowledge? Uh, in discussions with families in a way that is still really respectful of their values and their goals for their, their children um, continues to be really challenging. So I think
1: that's something we'll continue to explore. agree. You know, I was reflecting also, we have uh, physicians talking to you today, but also recognizing the nurses have a lot of additional issues to face. And uh, moral distress is often felt by physicians and rarely mentioned, but noted by nurses and frequently mentioned. And it's uh, we need to really do a lot of interventions and attention to moral distress in both Groups, Um, And that also reminded me that with nursing shortages and resource shortages, this is uh, a critical component, but it also lends a lot of ethical lenses to how do we care for patients when we're trying to make do um, with less um, and the impact to both the humans and the patients that comes from that. Um, And we didn't really bring up directly resource allocation, but increasingly, I think, especially in well-resourced countries where we're sort of finally getting a bit stressed out that there might not be resources, uh, is the time to really pay attention to something we've ignored far too long, which is how those with limited resources have been doing resource allocation for a very long time. There's a lot to learn, um, and uh, there's a lot of ethics that has already been employed in settings where they've really been forced to examine the issue in a real way.
0: Yeah, and I think, you know, All of those are important topics and points. And I think it's so uh, interesting because when you approach anything in clinical care, so since I'm an intensivist, it's in the ICU, um, you're always making ethics type judgments every moment of every day, but you really don't think of them as ethical judgments or decisions. And so um, that brings us uh, sort of aligning with all the the different things uh, that we talked about, that brings us to sort of how do our listeners as clinicians, if they weren't able to go to some of the talks at the World Congress, how do you um, suggest that it's, is there like a systematic approach for them to uh, to figure out how to approach situations where there is uncertainty or where the needle is moving actively and the benefits of therapy are unclear? So some of the examples that you already brought up are um, in genetic syndromes where uh, the, the benefit or the life, uh, the quality of life or quantity of life is very, very uncertain or when a child is maybe going to be technology dependent or not, or advanced um, life support therapies like ECMO and and mechanical circulatory support, is there sort of a tried and true method to <laughs> approaching those situations? I'm mean, going to guess the answer is no, but uh, any tips?
1: I, mean, I think there's a few things you could do: ask questions, um, and uh, that involves uh, leaning into the increasing um, engagement with people like clinical bioethicists in our practices. Sometimes the palliative care teams have people who have advanced training in ethics and are able to help with some of those questions. Some of your colleagues may have additional training and abilities to help you with those. Um, I think one simple step is check yourself. So if it feels like there's a view and a value at hand, what are your views and values? You have to do a lot of self-reflecting to actually be able to engage and make ethical decisions. So that would be one step that I'd say everybody can do is what are your views and values? Am I imposing them? Am I being
2: open-minded? Am
1: I actually listening for what views and values are coming back?
2: Thank you. You're you're right. But I think one of the key things that people with training will often help um, clinicians with is asking questions, but the particular questions of, you know, we, we actually rarely disagree on the value claims. I don't think like there's nobody in a children's hospital that would say, I disagree with the ethical claim that we should act in the child's best interests. But I think. Um, learning to differentiate when there's a factual question to be answered, and when somebody is smuggling in a value judgment under the cover of facts, is is really important. I'm not saying people are doing that in a you know in a nefarious way, but um, I think we all, I think asking each other those questions, and the other thing that I think is really important that people often talk about we get all emotional about things as if that's a bad thing, whereas I think we just need to recognise that people have strong emotions about things and go, well, hang on, why am I feeling so um, angry about that or so strongly about this and going, what What are my reasons underlying that and then articulating that to each other? If we try and leave the emotions to the side, like you often hear people say, they just implicitly affect the process. So I think all of that just adds up to us having really good quality discussions with our colleagues and being prepared to share those sorts of things and really trying to dig down into what we think and feel about things and and approach the conversations with families in the same way.
3: I think it's, it's really important to acknowledge uncertainty. I mean, we live in it every single day. We, you know, just have to make the best decision that we can in the moment with the data that we have at the time. You know, we do it for micro decisions and, and macro decisions and, you know, I think we have to give ourselves a little bit of compassion and our colleagues and everyone else who's making decisions to to just acknowledge the fact that, you know, if the answer was obviously right, like we would all pick the same thing and because that's not the case, um, we just need to allow space for, for the, the differences of opinions. And I think um, Mel really hit the nail on the head in terms of communication really being a huge part of the answer um and whether it's communication with colleagues whether it's communication with families we have to both you know ask questions and also actually actively listen to the answers instead of um you know making assumptions about what and why we really have to get Kind of to the bottom of of like you know why a family is reluctant to discontinue life sustaining therapy. There may be other specific things that they're worried about or concerned about that um, is perhaps manifested in you know this phrase. But actually, if you reframe it or ask them certain questions to you know understand better exactly where they're coming from, then you know a path might become clear. Um, and so I think that communication with families key, and also with the interdisciplinary team is so important. Um, to be able to, you know, like, I guess, spread the ethics, uh, the ethics literacy. And then, you know, the understanding that, you know, we are being transparent and, and to keep everyone on the same page is a, is a really important step to, to, I think, mitigating moral distress within an interdisciplinary team. Um, I, was, I think it's really important, um, as part of that communication
4: that everyone on the team operates from the assumption that everyone has the best interest of the patient at heart. i I don't know any member of the team or any parent or family who comes into the hospital not wanting to do the best. But I think sometimes when uh, acuity um, is high and everyone becomes tense, sometimes we f- forget that people are operating with the best intentions. Um, and then when we think we have the right course of action in mind and someone says something different, we approach it with um maybe some more um, projecting negative intent. Um, and so I love Roxanne that you're talking about questioning um, so when you have that concern about where someone um, is coming from in their suggestion or in their opposition to your um, idea for how best to move forward that you start with understanding the why because I guarantee there's a lot to learn about how um, they're thinking the the path forward that they're suggesting is actually in the best interest of the patient. And so starting with those questions is the best way to, to get on this same page ultimately.
1: I love that, Laura. It reminds me also of how often clinicians, especially new ones, because we sort of started the chat about if you're new in your career, and you get sent in a room with a goal, like go ask for this, go make the withdrawal of life-sustaining therapy permission happen, go get a DNR or something like this, as though it's just like slide in and get a checkbox and move on out. And it's just one, not how life works, and two, going to set you up for a disaster. So you shouldn't go into conversations with family with this like endpoint goal of some sort of agreement to some sort of thing in mind, and you will always be more successful if you come in going... I feel like this is a place where I'd like to get to in my recommendation, or I feel like this is something I could recommend. And I don't know if we'll get there in this conversation, or if we'll need more than one. And let me start with what's happening. And it really struck me when you're talking about defensiveness, Laura, and how we like think the other person's thinking, if you come in with a goal, and the family says, no, thanks, then you start getting all defensive and having an argument about that point, because you've been so focused on this goal or this point of conversation, instead of being more open, which sort of reflects back to what everybody else has been saying too.
0: Yeah, that sounds like a really great way to reframe your thought process and sort of prevent a little bit of frustration (laughs) before (laughs) going in the room. And I think that works really well, you know, for the next question when there's disagreements amongst the team members. And, you know, obviously, we don't want to attribute malice on anyone and their intentions. But obviously, when everybody is thinking about what is in the best interest of this patient? But coming to different answers, especially you know, between surgeons and intensivists and transplant doctors and the nurses and you know everybody on the care team, really um, has this sort of holy grail of we want to act in the best interest of the patient, but we we all have different values and different ways that we we figure out what we think is the best interest of the patient. And so, I guess the next question is short of having someone else come in and do this for you, which is an option in some places, maybe not in all places. Um, there are places uh, with less resources. But obviously, getting an ethics consult or having the ethics team come in at that point, often is sort of just what happens. And I, I feel like a lot of the time when that happens, it's a little bit too late. Like it's it's everybody's already like embroiled in moral distress and maybe or
1: entrenched in their <laughs> positions.
0: <laughs> exactly. So how do you... um recommend approaching those types of situations?
3: I mean, I I think the first thing to say is that those different perspectives end up making um, decisions richer. And so, you know, having different perspectives and and disagreements does end up, um, you know, kind of opening eyes. And there's been many times when, you know, I've kind of gone into a situation thinking something and then had to do a recheck. And so I think, you know, having people with playing devil's advocate is, is actually a really key part to to try to keep the path open and, and really explore all opportunities. In saying that there, you know, at some at the same time we still need to make a decision <laughs> at, at some point. Uh, and so, you know, having – we talked a lot about, you know, outliers and how to deal with outliers throughout um, the ethics sessions um, in, in this conference. And I think one way to do that is to just to get the stakeholders in the same room together. And so often by airing different perspectives It becomes clear where the outliers are and so then it's it's possible for them to see, you know, that they've had their position heard. Uh, for a start, uh, and then also see that they're an ally here. And so I think that's having the stakeholders in the same room is is certainly one path. And then the second one that we've, you know, advocated for, um, Mel, Roxanne and I have written about, is, is you know, defining a, a process or a, a process to create a legitimate decision. And so once, you know, we've mm-hmm. all agreed on on a process, heard the different opinions, had intentional mm-hmm. devil's advocate, um, and we still come up with a decision and then it's, it's easier to align with um, and, and kind of like bring the outliers towards the centre.
2: And I think maybe you're not necessarily always aiming to bring the outliers to the centre, but it, the process should um, force a good quality discussion. Because you know, Sometimes the outliers are right <laughs> and we need to all move. But I think a key thing, and, and you just mentioned, you know, you've gone into meetings before and then sort of rechecked and changed your position, is that a lot of the time um, in a poor quality discussion, the group, you might have all the people in the same room, but if everybody just states their position, Um, and comes in with an attitude of trying to talk people around to what they want. Um, I forget how I read a paper who, I've forgotten the name of the author, but they talk about um, just monologues with an audience rather than an actual dialogue. (laughs) So you actually want to go in with an attitude of, I'm really curious to see what other people think and whether my provisional thoughts about what we should do are actually fully considered. So if everybody goes in with the attitude of openness to changing their view whether you're in the middle or the outlier like and then actually hear people's reasons for their view not just the end result of their view then that results in a better discussion Curiosity. you may, you
1: may have to state that explicitly like i'm asking everybody in this room to try and be curious about where the other person is coming from mm-hmm. um so we can come to a conclusion um in saying that explicitly i also uh was reflecting on A lot of times people are hanging on to a position because they feel very tied tightly to it for some additional reason. And I feel like clinicians in particular, and often this gets attributed to surgeons, but I think it's true for everyone, they have these obligations they feel to the patient or to the team or to whatever it might be, and they haven't actually said them out loud. So by making implicit obligations explicit, you actually give the opportunity for everybody to understand where that viewpoint might be coming from, whether it changes how the conversation goes or not, it can open up people to being a little bit more curious or a bit more understanding of where you might be coming from. And it may actually help you in expressing it explicitly to see how it's influencing your own decision and or give others the opportunity to understand why you've already met your obligation. Because a lot of times people are clinging to it and it's it's actually beyond what anybody should be expected to obligate themselves to. So um, I think trying to find the opportunities to get people to express their implicitly held Obligations or responsibilities, or what that hook is, as to why they feel they can't let go or or don't want to go down a different path, or need to really fixate on a, a specific issue, can be can be helpful. I think that's I think that's really
4: valuable. Um, I I always go into difficult conversations with the recognition that if I want someone else to be willing to compromise, then I also have to be willing to do the same. Um, but that doesn't mean not bringing your voice to the table and maybe your concerns, rather than being the initial decision, uh, turns into um, points along the care trajectory where you pause and see if, if um, what you're doing is working. So if you have concerns about the proposed intervention being the right path forward, then perhaps you're willing to compromise. But what you suggest is, when will we know if this is working or not working? And when can we stop and reassess that? So maybe you don't ultimately affect the first decision, but don't be afraid to build a pathway for reconsideration
1: down the road. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's so brilliant, Laura, because a lot of, I mean, we do this in ethics all the time, you can't generally make a perfect decision that upholds every principle and ethical obligation that you might possibly have, but it's the pieces that are incompletely upheld or not ideal. How do you mitigate the impact or the negative impacts of that? And it's kind of what you're speaking to now, by having your voice in there, even if it isn't changing the first decision, you may be able to make contributions that mitigate the negative impact of an alternate decision.
2: I think that's something that's really useful when you're talking to families, especially in that state of uncertainty when people are like, oh, should we really be doing this, you know, highly burdensome, highly resource-driven um, you know, therapy? It, and sometimes you might be surprised that parents want to embark on something that in your view looks like potentially poor quality um, or more burdensome than, than you would think. But I often ask them, well, what would it look like for you when what things would make this you think the burdens are too high, and then that can be part of your plan going forward. You go, or I might say, look for me, I would, I would be unwilling to continue this if you know X, Y, and Z started to happen. Like if X complication happens, that would make this untenable for your child, I think, because you know. And then so it's not then a surprise when you come if and when you come to that days or weeks down down the line. And I think that's sort of what you're getting at.
0: Laura, yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that also harkens back to the planning your exit strategy <laughs> that you talked <laughs> yeah. about. Do you want to uh, tell our listeners a little bit about, because I think, you know, ECMO and then the questions about ECPR and consent and all of that, it, it's such a hot topic for having these ethical type dilemmas and discussions. Do you want to briefly reflect on um, your talk and then maybe some of the discussion afterwards?
3: Yeah, I mean, uh, ECMO is a, a high high risk, potentially high reward therapy. Um, we use as a last resort usually, and the mortality rates are around 50%. So, you know, I argue that for all patients on ECMO, we need to be transparent about what the potential outcome is, considering it's highly likely that the child will not survive to go home, and if they do survive to go home, they will not be the same child. Um, And so I I advocate, and many others agree, that, that we should start that process from the outset um, and be, you know, provide that anticipatory guidance and um, really through iterative conversations and obviously not dropping 10 bombs in, in one conversation, but through iterative conversations we we build on, um, we build on, and, you know, breaking serious news and, and eliciting values and goals so that we can make decisions with families together about, you know, how we weigh the benefits and burdens of therapies and create milestones like we've all been saying about, you know, what we would expect plan A um, to be how, how we're achieving plan A and if you know plan A becomes not feasible then we have plan B but look for now we're hoping for plan A and we'll put plan B in a box for a little while and put that away and then later if, you know, it becomes clear that Plan A is no longer a feasible path, and we say as, as hard as it is, it's it's time to start talking about the alternatives. And if we flagged it earlier on, it's an easier introduction in subsequent conversations. And so planning an exit strategy when, you know, the mortality rate from this therapy is, is this high is something that we really need to start doing from the outset And defining what ECMO is, which is a, a temporary intervention. Um, and creating goals with families which may change um, but eliciting their values and understanding what things are important to them and if certain you know paths happen or complications happen you know, what they're not willing to accept and when the burdens will outweigh benefits and acknowledging with them that there is uncertainty we'll make that decision together and I think that's something that we've said a lot throughout this conference that shared decision making exists on a spectrum and For these types of decisions, there's ethically justified approaches to use a more extreme end of of directiveness and and clinician guidance while still understanding what the family's values are and be able to provide recommendations which are value aligned but still unburdens them from the decision making.
1: I think something that didn't come up but is really important is understanding that the impact of the one case that becomes very contentious. And it's like everybody's worst nightmare of nobody being able to come to an agreement and a child being in the middle of this whole contentiousness. And various teams have to go through this in different ways with different legal and other structures to to help them. And trying to come back to understand that that's actually an infrequent occurrence can be very difficult. And that actually can build into a fear of talking about it at all. And all you focus on is the one badly encountered exit strategy. that was maybe even somebody else's and you just avoid talking about it altogether, which is actually gonna worsen your problem or your fear because you're more likely to come up with multiple bad experiences of exit strategies from fearing to talk about it to begin with. And so there's some internal bravery we all have to do in being like, gosh, this could be hard. I might have to psych myself up a little bit. Uh, recognize, note, I have anxiety, particularly because the most recent case was difficult or the conversation didn't go well, or my colleague wound up in a in a really tough situation with his particular family, take a dig, deep breath and jump in and have the conversation anyways. You might need more planning, but you have to have the conversation.
3: I think it's key. Like, I mean, most of the time we do get this right. And most of the time we can develop therapeutic relationships and and most of the time these conversations do you know go the way that we hope and and most families do want our expertise and input and all, all the data out there really does suggest that families want to make these decisions on their own they don't they, they want our guidance and, and it is part of our job. Um, we have that fiduciary responsibility to really help guide them through this you know nuanced you know complex navigation and it is it's part of our, our job to help them with that um, we can't leave them alone to, to Google the answer. <laughs>
4: I'm smiling a little bit, not because, I mean, it's obviously a difficult subject, but um, I I think of those who go into cardiac critical care as some of the most courageous people I know. And yet when it comes to this topic, the number of times that it just feels overwhelming, uh, I mean, to myself included, but to colleagues, um, and that you hear conversations behind closed doors about, can you believe we're still doing this? Can you believe the parents still want to continue? And you're like, but did you tell the family that we are worried that we need to be done. Have you had this conversation with them? Oh, well, not yet. <laughs> you know, right. So um, it does, it takes a huge amount of courage, but it's the right thing to do. It's the ethical thing to do, to be completely transparent with families when we ultimately think that um, our interventions are not therapeutic and are not going to reach the goals that we intended.
2: And, and you know, I think um, one thing that also didn't quite come up in the discussion, but I know um, in the paper that Katie was presenting, we do mention it is that, to, we often people talk about eliciting values or um, you know, exploring patients' values as if as if they're sitting there ready-made, waiting to be discovered in a conversation. Whereas in reality, nobody knows exactly what their values are about whether how long they're going to leave their child or it most people haven't even thought about it. And I think by talking to them and saying, look, given what you've told me about your family and what I think the outcome would probably be, you know, I think if we haven't improved after this long, we probably need to, or, you know, whatever, you give your your recommendation and then they may come back to you with with something different and you have this conversation um, but they might come back to you with more information about how they think about it and you go, oh, well, if, if you're happy with X, then maybe we would go down this pathway and through the conversation they actually work out what their values are. Like it's not just listing them, which I think puts even bigger um, – like you're helping families and patients construct their values, not just discover them. So you're not just discovering values that are ready-made. So I think that puts an even bigger weight of responsibility on doing those conversations well. To the end of doing them well,
1: That's the conversation you hand off your pager for, you have somebody cover you, you make sure you're not getting interrupted. I know we all have multiple conversations with families where we get interrupted and a good portion of the time that's okay and families can understand it. But if you're going in and you're gonna have to psych yourself up to even have the conversation, then do yourself the benefit of making (laughs) sure that you're not gonna get interrupted 50 times, that you can't keep your train of thought, that you can't focus and actively listen because you're just being pulled away. And it sounds really silly, but it's so important to give yourself the space to have proper conversation with mm-hmm. the family. Yeah. Yeah.
0: The setting, the preparation, mm-hmm. everything is Does so Doesn't matter important. how
1: senior you are, you still yeah. need it.
4: And knowing that this conversation will occur over multiple occurrences, yeah. right? mm-hmm. it's not just a moment in time, it will continue. Being thoughtful about what happens when you uh, sign off right. to somebody else. Mm-hmm. Is uh, your colleague going to be able to continue that conversation in the same way? Um And if there's any concern about that, maybe bringing in other parties who then can provide the continuity. Um, So that circles back a little bit to our palliative care colleagues um, or social work or chaplaincy, but bringing in um, other uh, individuals with expertise in these types of conversations that can really assure that the conversation is making progress moving forward.
3: I think that's a a great point because having that kind of continuity of language is is useful. And so, like, for example, like I use a lot of um, phrases like, you know, like, X's body is telling us this, or X is telling us this, and, you know, the ability to be able to continue that if, you know, a clinical thing changes. So to be able to, you know, for one of my colleagues to be able to walk in and go, oh, now X is telling us this, you know, or, and, and it does actually help, I think, families, like, follow what yep. we're saying. Absolutely.
0: Hello, listeners. I want to interrupt and take a quick moment to thank and acknowledge this episode's sponsors, and CPAs and Wealth Advisors. Trap CPAs and Wealth Advisors is a comprehensive financial services firm comprised of accounting, tax, and wealth management serving individuals and families throughout the country. For over 50 years, Trap has served as a dynamic leader and provider of financial services. Unlike traditional financial advisory firms, their accounting team specializes in taxation, financial reporting, and consulting services, including financing and M&A, their wealth management team management client investment assets and provides comprehensive estate, tax, and financial planning services. As certified public accountants and registered investment advisors, they are uniquely positioned to be trusted financial advisors for PCICS members. Trap fiduciary team combines the value of their individual credentials to achieve a comprehensive view of your business and personal goals. Thank you, Trap for sponsoring today's episode. I do want to shift gears a little bit. And I know that we could probably have like three or four more episodes about this. So we'll, we'll do over Zoom or something because there are so many unexplored um, topics in this area. But you all are such uh, fascinating, amazing role models for people who may be interested in a career that's ethics adjacent or or heavily uh, ethics involved. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about how you came into this. And if you want to go first, just so you can hop out.
2: <laughs> Thanks. Um, so I think it really depends what context you work in. Uh, you know, for example, in Australia, where I'm from, I think I could count on definitely less than two hands, how many paid ethics positions exist in the entire nation. Um, and so it depends how it works, where, where you work, and it depends on what you Want do you want to do less clinical time and do some pure ethics, or is it just something you want to marry up with your clinical time? I think doing further study is always useful, and I mean ethics is a branch of philosophy and it's a huge um, academic discipline. So I know I got a huge amount out of doing your know, masters in in philosophy and looking at ethics subjects within that, and other people do other other academic. Paths and PhDs and that sort of thing, but what I think we can really add as clinician ethicists is marrying up the analytical ethics um, expertise with um, empirical, like scientific expertise. So that's something that I would really like to see there being more research done of that of that nature. And I think it's something that clinician ethicists can really can really drive forward in in partnership with sort of more pure academic bioethicists and, other clinicians that may not want to do extra studies per se but who have a real interest in ethics and I, I strongly think that all you know all healthcare clinicians make ethical decisions every day and I don't um, and I think clinical ethics practice should be really deeply embedded in our practice. Um, and sh- it shouldn't be something that we need to get a consult for all the time, Yeah, I think. Yeah, brilliant. I mean, there's several pathways to make it your
1: career. And I agree with Mel, it's going to depend a little bit on your setting and your space. But it also depends on how you want to do it. So if you're like really interested in the academic philosophical bioethics and you want to make that your research academic focus, that can, that can be that way. Many ethicists have multiple, multiple grant-funded studies um, and ways that they do their ethical practice that isn't necessarily this direct by the bedside, clinical ethics at the bedside, so that's definitely a possibility, and there's a few different ways to train into that. There's multiple places in uh, U.S. and Canada now, I don't know, uh, and and a few of the other countries, uh, I don't want to speak to other people's educational programs, but they've actually created the Masters of Bioethics, specifically to intersect with the philosophy and medicine to be able to give you that broad-based training. And then often the other way to do it is a specific Masters in a question or a PhD in a question that is an ethical question in which you're going to supplement your educational learning with uh, uh, ethical moral theories and ethical analysis and and that sort of learning. And then there's a whole other aspect that is doing an actual clinical ethics fellowship, which is a little bit different and, and just so that those who don't know have a sense of how the field might work. There's you, you could be a completely uh, bioethics oriented, non-clinician, trained with a PhD and still want to do a clinical ethics fellowship. So there's many different ways for people to sort of interact and decide how to incorporate it in their career. Um, Myself, I have a master's of bioethics that I did at the University of Pennsylvania while I I worked at Children's Hospital Philadelphia. And then I had always intended to be sort of translational. And I wanted to really know and understand and and love the academic philosophical ethics, uh, ivory tower sort of academic branch, but also be deeply embedded in like, but what does that mean for me at the bedside as a clinician? And then Backwards as well, because sometimes in academic philosophy or bioethics, you're like, I don't understand why the clinicians aren't getting this, or you think you've given this really beautiful framework advice, and as a clinician, you're like, well, that's utterly impractical. So I wanted to live in the space where you could cross across those things and help each to understand the other, so that you were more fulsome in that space. Um, I have, I am co-appointed to both the Department of Bioethics and the Department of Critical Care, but that was something that hadn't existed before, and so you may have to just ask some questions to see what your institution capable abilities are and who you want to match up with that's going to be able to support you and then there was a lot of support and mentorship in both sides of that pathway so being a clinician and knowing I was going to be hired and seated in the cardiac ICU my academic focus is in bioethics but how can I get the support and help in in being appropriate to that genre in doing the work that I want to do so that's how I carved out my career but there are a few different pathways in which you could go about it um
3: yeah so I mean I I uh kind of fell into (laughs) this area, partly because, as you can hear from my accent, I'm Australian, but I I work in in the US. And the approaches to decision-making are are somewhat different in terms of how the best interest standard is applied um, as an intervention versus a guiding principle. And so I I found it fascinating to think more about this. And um, I think uh, to Roxanne and and Mel's point about, you know, bridging the gap between, you know, the, in quotation marks, ethics in wafty, you know, 5,000, 10,000 word papers and, and making it a clinically relevant um, path for, for us at the bedside in terms of um, guidance for decision-making has really been kind of my my path in ethics. And so I'm kind of currently doing a PhD in, in that to try to carve this out a little more and do a bit more of a – to get more understanding and learning from my perspective. But I think, you know, to Mel's point – you know, this is part of our, our practice. You know, to me, palliative care is part of my job as an intensivist. Ethics is is part of our job as as physicians as well. Um, and so, I think it is everyone's responsibility to to find a path in, in there to to explore that understanding a little bit. Um, I. Um
4: Came to my bioethics training, I think, by recognizing what an important part it was of the daily work that we did. So during my first year as a faculty member, um, recognizing the, the value of having an ethical framework for the work that I was doing, um, I wanted to get some additional training. Uh, I was fortunate to be at a location at the time. I was at Children's Mercy, Kansas City, that has a pediatric bioethics certificate program. Um, So I completed that. Um, But ultimately, I think I got most of my experience experience by um, joining the hospital ethics committee and engaging in consultation work. Um, And just by doing hands-on training in different venues outside of the ICU, um, I think I really was able to kind of hone my ethics skills. Um, So I would say for those people who um, don't have the time um, to take on some more uh, formal bioethics training, um, I would explore different opportunities in your hospital just to get more experience. Um, and if there really isn't, you know, great opportunities there, you can build some. It, you know, it may just be a, an ethics journal club or, um, you know, reaching out to different individuals in your institution who um, can can um, help uh, do some education. Um, I currently do not have any carved out time for bioethics work. So it's something that I just uh, try to squeeze into any, you know, few moments here and there in my day. Um, So I I think there's a lot of different ways that you can bring ethics
1: into your career. Um, And I'm such a good point. The bioethicists in most locations would be delighted to have someone come to them and say, I'd like to incorporate bioethics education into what I'm doing or how I'm doing it or bring it to my group. Like partner up uh, with the people I think makes a lot of sense. I just always trying to remind myself to recognize how broad our disciplines are in PCICS and there is a a role for nursing to also do a bioethics degree Um, and uh, we have a a nurse who's a bedside nurse in cardiac ICU and has also done a master's of bioethics um, at University of Toronto and she uh, works with us as our bioethics nurse in our ethics program. Now Mary had the advantage of having this sort of formal role that we created for her but by doing her master's of bioethics she gets that additional knowledge base and she actually takes care a lot of the, the moral distress rounds that we do and she pays attention to what's happening on the unit and there's a, a little bit of uh, a, before the problem becomes a huge one in everybody's mind or becomes a super distressing one, can we understand where they're at and try and uh, understand the ethical underpinnings as we go. So Mary does a lot of work in that aspect. Um, there's many nurse bioethicists who contribute hugely to the literature and bioethics. There's some nurse bioethicists who've become solely bioethicists as they transitioned out of their nursing career. Um, but this isn't an exclusively for physicians kind of way to build academic into your career. So um, it's very open to everybody. And bioethics itself is wildly multidisciplinary. So it's one of the things that they um, are, is a core principle of bioethics is to have multiple lenses from multiple different professions and and outlooks. So everyone should feel um, empowered to figure out how they might want to bring bioethics into their practice or into their knowledge base and their armamentary.
3: Yeah, just a, a quick plug for those types of interdisciplinary, like education or team-based sessions, to really promote ethics literacy. So we're all using the the same types of language and as a way to mit- mitigate moral distress too.
0: Thank you. Well, before we wrap up, um, I mean, I know we just really opened Pandora's box and uh, haven't really. Uh, delved very deeply into any one topic but is there any big sort of hot take from the meeting so far or any topic that you want to talk a little bit more about with our listeners or i mean my hot
1: take is uh, is a given and i recognize my bias in it but i think you can see from the conference not just from the specified ethics session and just how many people were in that room i was delighted to have such a huge turnout but the ethics interspersed throughout all over the conference in multiple different talks. I think that my take home, and it it warms my heart, is that everybody is recognizing how complex and how ethically complex of a world we're existing in, in pediatric cardiac care. um, And that we all need to do something to try and recognize and align ourselves to those difficulties. So it is a a valid and and important scope of academic practice. And it is something that everybody can be involved in. So it's everywhere. And uh, and I'm just a everybody is opening their eyes to being like engaged in a more formal. I
3: guess my hot take is that um, precision medicine is not just applicable to genomics and metabolomics and proteomics, but also to decision making. Um, and so I think having that personalized approach is, is part of the future. Precision medicine in general is, is part of the future, but the applicability to communication and decision making is, is becoming increasingly clear.
0: All right. Well, thank you all again for joining us on the PCICS podcast. This has been incredibly informative, and I'm sure that our listeners are going to have lots more questions. Hey, listeners, if you'd like to watch the video of the recording of the session that we refer to in this episode about ethics from the 8th World Congress of Pediatric Cardiology and Cardiac Surgery, I have great news for you. As of this week, over 100 lectures from the World Congress are available online free of charge. Thanks to Heart University. All of these lectures can be found at www.heartuniversity.org forward slash world congress. The specific video uh, that we refer to in this session can be found under the cardiac intensive care tab. I'll go ahead and put a link in the show notes as well. Um, and to our listeners, thank you for listening to the PCICS podcast, the go-to podcast for pediatric cardiac critical care and the official podcast of the pediatric cardiac I Intensive Care Society. Please uh, visit our website, PCICS.org, where you can find out how to become a member, look at job opportunities, educational resources, make connections with great people like uh, our guests today. And um, don't forget to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, The song I Don't Know Why Grapes was used under a Creative Commons 3.0 attribution license. Thank you.